This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. As we know, William's actions in the North during the winter of 1069 to 1070 left an indelible mark on English history. However, personally, I'm left with some lingering questions. Today's episode, episode 87, is entitled Analysis of a Harrying. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Was King William I of England guilty of genocide? There, I said it. Okay, now that it's out there, let's discuss. John of Worcester wrote of people so hungry, literally on the verge of starvation, resorting to eating family pets as well as human flesh. That's right. Reports of actual cannibalism are recorded with references to William's actions in Northumbria in late 1069 through 1070. Simeon of Durham talked of masses of English peasants and lower nobility selling themselves and their own children into slavery, just to stay alive. Seriously. Here's Simeon's exact quote. Quote, So great a famine prevailed that men, compelled by hunger, devoured human flesh, that of horses, dogs, and cats, and whatever custom abhors, Others sold themselves to perpetual slavery so that they might in any way preserve their wretched existence. Simeon goes on to say the following, quote, Others, while about to go into exile from their country, fell down in the middle of their journey and gave up the ghost. It was horrific to behold human corpses decaying the houses, the streets, and the roads, swarming with worms, while they were consuming in corruption with an abominable stench, for no one was left to bury them in the earth, all being cut off either by the sword or by famine. End quote. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, adds, quote, At Evesham Abbey, in distant Worcestershire, the monks long remembered how large numbers of starving refugees arrived in search of food, but like concentration camp survivors in modern times, died from eating too ravenously. Every day, says the Abbey's chronicler, they buried five or six more bodies. End quote. Can we agree that the devastation was total, brutal, inhumane? So what are William's cheerleaders saying about this whole thing anyway? How might folks like William of Jumiege and William of Poitiers downplay such a monstrously terrible series of attacks on innocent people, his own subjects, mind you. Well, even Jumiege couldn't sweep this atrocity under the rug. He says, quote, By sword and fire they massacred almost the entire population, from the very young to the old and gray. End quote. Accepting words like massacred and details specifying age, for instance, much of what the Conqueror's cheerleaders do is simply write grade three level newspaper articles merely reporting the facts. Now put a pin in this idea for a little while here, but suffice it to say that it's pretty much blown over in the records by these guys. It wasn't just as Jumiege said that the quote unquote entire population from the very young to the old and gray were 
quote-unquote massacred by quote-unquote sword and fire. See, Simeon of Durham draws our attention to something arguably worse than the massacre of an entire people. Simeon tells us that uh, about 60 of the 90-mile stretch, or roughly 97 kilometers between York and Durham, for the next nine years at least, the land itself lay barren and desolate. He says that every single last city, town, village, camp, I don't know, campfire, uh, whatever it is, lay abandoned and uninhabited. In the 1120s, William of Malmesbury, who is a contemporary of Simeon of Durham, mind you, corroborates this by explaining that this stretch of land largely still lay untilled and unused. These two, along with other chroniclers, were afraid to report the bones of men, women, and children alike still lay strewn upon the landscape for years, even decades afterward. Just stop and imagine that. Bones, unburied bones, strewn across the countryside for miles and miles between Durham and York. It's these kinds of reports that hearken us back to Simeon's words earlier, that whole bit about, quote, for no one was left to bury them in the earth, all being cut off by either sword or by famine, end quote. Now, to keep it all in focus, England at large, though rising up region by region, month after month, over the previous three years, had already experienced unprecedented death and destruction. But Northumbria, post-winter of 1070, is the only place during the Norman conquest of England that, it, that is described as a wasteland of unburied bones. And a victimhood, despite some thoughts on the subject today, isn't a competition. But, I mean, Yorkshire. It's hard to wrap your head around such devastation and death. Now, a good 17 years into the future from the initial rollout of the human tragedy that became known as the Harrying of the North, see, an encyclopedic record of the entire kingdom's land holdings since the reign of King Edward ended back in January of 1066 would be written. We'll discuss this document over the course of future episodes. Believe me, it'll play into it. But it's worth mentioning that this doomsday book, as it came to be called, would record that when records were collected and compiled between January and August of 1086... The word waste in Latin is vasta. The word waste is mentioned numerous times across so many pages in direct reference to Northumbria. This is 17 years later, mind you. Now, to be fair, again, the Latin word vasta translates to waste in English, and it wasn't just Northumbria where it was used in the Doomsday Book, but it was certainly used to describe considerable swathes of land and properties in the north compared to the rest of the kingdom. What's more, when you look at the population records between the death of King Edward II and the, in the Doomsday Book, you'll see a shocking disparity. See, according to the website The History Jar, upwards of 90% of English, England's population were rural, meaning subsistence farmers, essentially. That said, land north of the Umber probably held the same statistic within its earldom, probably higher than the figure of 90%, to be honest. Suffice it to say, Northumbria was overwhelmingly rural. 
Now think back to that bit about the Doomsday Book, how the records indicated fields left untilled for decades after William's actions there, and how the countryside was strewn with unburied dead. Now that said, we know that England grew in population of around one million people between the years of 1000, under King Ethelred II, and 1100, under King William II Rufus. Now, these are loose figures, obviously, though still somewhat reliable based on a variety, uh, quite the variety, of archaeological and literary evidence. But if a one million person increase did actually occur, and again, there's little reason to doubt that, then when and where did that occur? Was Northumbria a recipient of these new residents? Well, I mean, if you were looking for a new house, would you even consider a place where fields were barren? Cities were small, and bones were scattered like leaves in the autumn? Probably not. So when analyzing the herring of the north, it's incredibly short-sighted to focus your attention so closely on just the winter of 1069 to 1070. Incredibly short-sighted, actually. To belabor the point a smidge more, chronicler Henry of Huntingdon reminds us that, uh, quote, in King William's 21st year, that is, the year 1087, there was scarcely a noble of English descent in England, but all had been reduced to servitude and lamentation, end quote. Even the English nobility was, frankly, obliterated. No one was safe from William's wrath. And even with this, do we even have any firm reason to doubt the dire straits of Northumbria, specifically, that they found themselves in after the harrying? Now, considering such massive population loss as a very real possibility, check this out. According to the Doomsday Book, Yorkshire reported only 25% of their population under King Edward II as still living in the region. Let me repeat that. One-fourth of the population of Yorkshire under King Edward II was still alive and around in 1087. Couple this with the statistics and records we've heard already, and this is pretty damning evidence for the conqueror. But what is one-fourth anyway? Fractions, percentages, they're tricky like that, and if you're not careful, they can completely mislead you. So what does one-fourth equate to in this context? How about approximately 150,000 Northumbrians, dead or gone? Now, folks have used various methods of distinguishing between the dead and the folks who left, but so far as I've figured out, this figure is still close enough to be safely rounded to 150,000 dead in the north after the harrying. And that said, now include 80,000 oxen and other livestock that is estimated to have been killed during just the winter of 1069 to 1070 as a part of William's engagements there. Humor me here as I just want to be crystal clear on this. The Herring of the North resulted in Yorkshire losing from murder, starvation, disease, and emigration upwards of 75% of its whole population in just under 20 years, with most of those happening a lot closer to, 10, to the winter of 1069 to 1070 uh, than otherwise. It's an astonishingly... Uh, stunningly brutal statistic to say nothing of the fact that such actions today 
amount to nothing short of genocide. And with that, we've finally arrived at some of my lingering questions. My initial knee-jerk gut reaction to the question of whether William the Conqueror is guilty of genocide is yes. But let's put this to the test. I'm, I'm certainly someone who's open to being corrected, so let's just see how right or wrong my claim is. First, in order for us to even entertain the possibility of such a giant accusation, because make no mistake, when making such bold accusations, one must have some solid evidence to support such claims, we need to establish a few agreed-upon definitions. And I present them here in the, in the form of questions. One, based on our current understanding of the rules of engagement, was William the Conqueror justified in his actions? there in the north in 1069 to 1070. Number two, what is genocide? And number three, were the people of Northumbria an ethnic, religious, and or racial group in the first place? We can start with any one of these three questions, honestly. So when in doubt, do what I do and defer to the timeless wisdom of a seven centuries hence recipient, for better or for worse, of the Norman conquest of England. One, Lewis Carroll, who wrote in Alice in Wonderland, quote, Begin at the beginning, the king said very gravely, and go on till you come to the end, then stop, end quote. All right, so let's start with this one. Number one, just war theory. All right, so indulge this humble podcaster and follow me down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. When discussing the rules of engagement, one must understand that the United Nations is hardly the Alpha and Omega of international law. As far back as the Code of Hammurabi around 2000 BCE, rules have been put in place not to protect the government, but to protect the citizen or the subject instead. No, really. Hammurabi's code quite literally states, quote, I prescribe these laws so that the strong do not oppress the weak, end quote. And I could create a whole separate podcast about the philosophy behind the American and French revolutions and how the government is never and should never be the thing protected. But that's neither here nor there. Perceiving William's actions through this lens alone isolates the government and brings it all into more focus. Are we trying to protect William or are we trying to protect the people of England here? The answer has been and should always be obvious. Now, beyond this simple proclamation of the intent to protect the people from their government, and certainly not the other way around, moving forward in time, we see folks from around the world, from India to the Muslim world, evolving this protection of the people, even those who are conquered and not yet fully within the fold of the new ruler. For instance, the Quran itself states the following in the Surah al-Bakari. It says, quote, and fight with them until there is no persecution, and religion should be only for Allah, but if they desist, then there should be no hostility except against the oppressors. End quote. Essentially, you inflict force upon those who inflict force upon you, and when force against you ceases, then so does your force against them. Now, that said, clearly, William the Conqueror was not a Muslim, nor did he study Islam really at all, as far as we know, <laughs> let alone their military doctrines. But what about something that would have certainly been in his cultural sphere? 
Well, there is something called just war theory. And historian Rory Cox in 2017 traced it back as far as the 12th dynasty Egypt. But that's just speaking of the philosophical lineage of just war theory, not the actual term for the structure of decisions in warfare that just war theory became known for. But this brings us to St. Augustine of Hippo, who died in 430 CE, just prior to the quote-unquote official, <laughs> uh, for whatever that word's worth here, collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 450s. Now, it's worth mentioning that despite European hijacking of St. Augustine's image as a pure-as-the-driven-snow white guy, the reality is that St. Augustine of Hippo was actually a Berber ancestor, and uh, being from Hippo <laughs> in North Africa, he was heavily influenced by pre-Muslim Berber and Roman thinking, which also relied heavily on theories of war developed since, that's right, 12, the 12th dynasty Egypt. William might very well have been aware of St. Augustine's teachings some 600 years after the saint's death. In fact, it's almost a certainty that St. Augustine's religious and philosophical influence would have seeped its way into Norman French religion and thinking. St. Augustine is a, for lack of a better word, he is a benchmark figure in Christian philosophy, a point in which Christian thought fundamentally changed course much like St. Thomas Aquinas will have here on the podcast quite soon. Yeah, William would have known Augustine's thinking, if not the man's name itself. See, St. Augustine pulls from Romans 13 when arguing for a theory of just war. In fact, St. Augustine's famous book, The City of God, is the first text to name the theory by its current name. Romans 13 is a chapter in the Bible devoted to the responsibilities of the citizen or subject within a polity. Romans 13, 1 through 2 states, quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God had instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, end quote. Now, I don't mean to just, you know, Bible beat here. That's not the point of this. I'm trying to get to the heart of what William would have most likely known and would have been a part of his upbringing, his teachings, his thinking. William would have certainly been educated in such passages, especially since the Bible is essentially giving him permission to skew and misrepresent the role of government, should he choose to do so. What's more, William might have been drawn to Romans 13, verses 3 through 5 as well. They say, quote, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. End quote. Okay, sure, I can get behind that, but knowing what kind of man William the Conqueror was, I'm not convinced that he would have believed this believe that he, you know, holds no terror for those who do right. I'm just saying history suggests otherwise in his case. Now apply this next quote from that same set, Romans 13 verses 3 through 5, to the Northumbrians, really to the English as a whole, and see how they felt about William through that lens. The verses continue on, Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? 
then do what is right, and you will be commended. End quote. So here, I think our northern friends might not exactly be innocent. They wanted to be free, not from the fear of the one in authority, but of the authority himself. And this is, a de this is definitely grounds for repercussions in a legal and punitive sense, just as the Confederacy that was mentioned in the last episode wasn't allowed to just leave the Union. To continue the excerpt, it says, quote, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. End quote. Wait. If you listen carefully, yeah, I, I think you can actually hear the hysterical laughing from the English living after 1066. <laughs> God's servant for your own good? Like, really? William? William the what again? The conqueror? Conquering is rarely done for the betterment of those being conquered. Just saying. Now, the book of Romans continues, quote, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. End quote. Eeh. I wonder if, while William felt righteousness in how he handled the English, and specifically the Northumbrians, that the English began to wonder if God was truly against them. And if so, why? I mean... What had they done to deserve such a fate? I can't help but wonder if the Northumbrians thought of Romans 13, verse 10, quote, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. End quote. Do you think they made the connection with various other verses in the Bible comparing God to love? Equating the two, really? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it states in no uncertain terms, quote, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. End quote. As we conclude this part of the episode in which we're trying simply to decide whether William had justification in engaging Northumbria in the way that he did in 1069 to 1070, there are only two outcomes to this whole thread. Connecting the dots, that is, there are only two outcomes that I'm able to come up with given the information that I have available to me. Number one, if the book of Romans states that the authority is established by God, then William is God's established authority in England. And if William is God's established authority, then whoever rebelled against William rebelled against God. Therefore, William was justified as a servant of God to inflict maximum punishment upon Northumbria. The other outcome, number two, is... William was a tyrant, and the Bible has been manipulated to meet a tyrant's desires. Uh, that's, that's the only two outcomes I can come up with. So back to our original question of the justification of the harrying as an acceptable interpretation of St. Augustine's just war theory. What do you think? Let me offer just one more piece to this puzzling question. St. Augustine once wrote, quote, They who have waged war in obedience to the divine command or in conformity with his laws, have represented in their persons the public justice or the wisdom of the government, and in this capacity have put to death wicked men. Such persons have by no means violated the commandment, thou shall not kill. End quote. So, essentially, 
According to medieval Christian doctrine of warfare, William was off the hook for all of the murder and mayhem and destruction he inflicted upon the English. William declared Northumbrians essentially, quote-unquote, wicked men, and therefore he did not violate the commandment of thou shall not kill. If this sticks in your craw and doesn't, you know, exactly feel quite right, letting William off the hook, even though centuries-old accepted Christian doctrine established such an idea, remember, it wasn't just some obscure 5th-century manuscript written by some pious Berber that supported William's actions. Here's something to consider. Even if William wasn't formally educated in what we've just discussed here, specifically, those who taught him and instructed him and advised him and condoned his behavior in England, those people were educated in the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo. Quite educated, actually. And let us not for a moment forget who supported William's actions prior to launching his fleet to Pevensey. The Supreme Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome, the Holy Father on Earth, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pontifex Maximus. That's right. Pope Alexander II bestowed his pallium, which is a Pope's physical symbol of official support, to William. And William's standard bearer held it proudly aloft throughout the Battle of Hastings and thereafter. It wasn't just William who said his conquest of England was justifiable warfare. It was the entire Catholic Church that condoned it. Now, sure, the Church tried to make amends later by laying out ways for soldiers under William's purview, uh, how they could make amends for the tragedy they'd inflicted upon the English. But come on, I mean, that's pretty weak. As far as William and the Catholic Church were concerned, the Northumbrians, having risen up in rebellion against their king, were, again, quote-unquote, wicked men. And William could justifiably defend the love of God by punishing them to whatever extent of the law he deemed necessary because, by God, he was an established agent of God. According to Romans chapter 13, verse 10, he, William of Normandy, being representative of God's love, quote-unquote, is the fulfillment of the law. William, no doubt, felt justified. But does that actually mean that he was justified? Now, normally I apologize for repeating things on the podcast, but I'll repeat now something I won't apologize for repeating, if that made any sense. We should throw caution when comparing the actions of a man, say, two days ago, with the actions of a man a thousand years ago. William was the way he was due to his upbringing and life circumstances. Ultimately, we have to ask, would William have behaved in a similar way toward the English had he been born closer to modern times? Well, we actually have a line of thinking that may hold clues to, this, to the answer to this question, and it begins with the thoughts of renowned historian Jonathan Riley Smith. He says, quote, The consensus among Christians on the use of violence has changed radically since the Crusades were fought. The just war theory prevailing for most of the last two centuries, that violence is an evil that can, in certain situations, be condoned as the lesser of evils, that's relatively young, end quote. 
Essentially, he supports the entirely reasonable notion that thoughts on violence of any kind are always evolving, ebbing and flowing toward and away from the rights of the sovereign individual compared to the authority. And this consideration bleeds into what's called jus ad bellum, or the conduct of combatants once war has commenced, or what we know of it as the rules of engagement. And as for this, let's move on to the next question. Number two, what is genocide? What is genocide? So way back in 1948, the fledgling United Nations held what they called the Convention of the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And what they came up with was this. Its preamble states, At all periods of history, genocide has inflicted great losses on humanity. End quote. International cooperation is required, it says, to, quote, liberate humankind from such an odious scourge, end quote. And also that genocide is a crime that can take place both in time of war as well as in a time of peace. According to the Convention's Article 2, genocide is an international crime committed with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, in whole or in part. Not mincing words. I appreciate that. Now, with this knowledge, let's, let's ask ourselves a pretty tough question here. <laughs> Was King William I of England guilty of genocide against England's northern subjects? And if you'll allow it, we'll now fold our third question from earlier, were the Northumbrians a part of their own ethnic group, into this second question about genocide. I mean, it's a pretty horrific act of a pretty desperate king to subdue a population of people who were pretty overwhelmingly against his rule. Speaking as an American, personally, that fires me up and says that William deserves the guillotine along with the likes of more modern tyrants, such as those demons charged and convicted during the Nuremberg trials after World War II, along with former Yugoslavian president Slobodan Milosevic, former Prime Minister Jean Kambanda of Rwanda, most recently former President of Iraq Saddam Hussein for his atrocities against the northern Iraqi population of Kurds. You know, however, nothing's that simple. Trying to stay objective, which is insanely hard when it comes to matters like this, such as genocide, we're still left with some horrible evidence against William. So as I said already, in order to indict William on charges of genocide against his northern population, we have to figure out what genocide actually is beyond what we just learned. And then, if Northumbrians fall into the categories within that definition. The United Nations Office of Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect defines genocide as, quote, any of the following actions committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, end quote, what are these following acts? They are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, the UN goes on to add something definitive and appropriate to our discussion here. Quote, 
To constitute genocide, there must be proven intent on the part of the perpetrators to physically destroy a national ethnic, ethnical, uh, racial, or religious group. Case law has associated intent with the existence of a state or organizational plan or policy, end quote. It continues, quote, Importantly, the victims of genocide are deliberately targeted, not randomly, because of their real or perceived membership of one of the four groups protected under the convention. This means that the target of destruction must be the group as such and not its members as individuals, end quote. Now, I know this is a ton of inside baseball here, <laughs> but I'm just presenting uh, my thoughts, presenting what I found and trying to come up with even just a, a base opinion, a base claim that might hold a little water here. All right. So with the definition of genocide and some of its nuances laid out, here's where it gets really interesting. For genocide to be possible in this case, we need to decide whether Northumbrians were members of their own distinct, as it says, quote, national, ethnical, uh, racial, or religious group. Now, well, religious and racial similarities are kind of no-brainers. Uh, Northumbrians were largely, if not entirely, Christian, and they were members of the white race, as defined by the United States Census Bureau as, quote, a person having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe. So, I mean, kind of obvious. Like I said, no-brainers. In terms of race and religion, Northumbrians were in the same classifications as Normans and even the rest of England. As for national classification, well, it has the ability to get a bit hairy. When the Norman Duke usurped the throne of an English kingdom, was it still an English kingdom after that? Or was it a Norman kingdom in the land of the English? Fine, fine. Let's, let's not get complex for complexity's sake. And we'll stick with Northumbrians having the same national identity as other English folk. This leaves us with ethnicity. And let me lead with the fact that obvious from my horrific initial pronunciation of the, do the Doomsday Book, not to mention my torturous mispronunciations of Anglo-Saxon and French names and words, I'm not from England. <laughs> there, I said it. I'm originally from Oklahoma about as far away from England while still within the Anglophonic world as one can get, it seems like. So I apologize in advance if I'm misreading things or making presumptions. So please, if this happens, I trust you to politely point out these misunderstandings. But for now, I can only go with what I have in front of me, and what's in front of me informs me that originally, England was populated by Celts and other Gaelic peoples before being invaded and overrun by Germanic peoples, such as the Angles, Jutes, and Saxons specifically. Over the handful of centuries since then, up to the 11th century, we find a fairly homogenized group across the south and east uh, middle of the kingdom, with obvious notable differences in the mighty Welsh to the west and the Scottish to the far north. Differences certainly abound amongst them, but they shared many of the same cultural and genetic mixtures as the rest in those regions of the island. However, when we look specifically from, say, Hadrian's Wall south to, say, East Anglia or thereabouts, we find a rather abrupt shift in culture and even genes. As many of you already know, this stretch was once a political region called the Danelaw due to its influx of Danish settlers and its loyalty to the Danish ways, and to some extent the Danish king himself. 
everything from their genetic makeup to other important, shall we say, cultural genetics, were shifted away from the rest of the kingdom. Language, traditions, faith systems. The Danelaw was a pretty different place within England in the 11th century. Referencing the United Nations, they say on their unstats.un.org website, quote, some of the bases upon which ethnic groups are identified are ethnic nationality. In other words, country or area of origin as distinct from citizenship or country of legal nationality. Uh, race, color, language, religion, customs of dress or eating, tribe, or various combinations of these characteristics, end quote. And according to a 2010 book, called Humanity, an Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, authors James People and Garrick Bailey write, quote, In essence, an ethnic group is a named social category of people based on perceptions of shared social experience or one's ancestors' experiences. Members of the ethnic group see themselves as sharing cultural traditions and history that distinguish them from other groups, end quote. Okay, Northumbrians check those boxes so far in terms of 11th century England. I can't speak for the England today, as I just haven't studied it that closely, but I would be confident so far in my assessment as Northumbrians being members of a distinct ethnic group within England a thousand years ago. The authors continue, though, quote, Ethnic group identity has a strong psychological or emotional component that divides the people of the world into opposing categories of us and them, end quote. That's an interesting point, as pretty much everything I've read so far about 11th century Northumbria gives the impression that they definitely saw themselves as separate from the group, you could say. So, to refer to Northumbrians, who, to be very clear, live squarely in the northern half of the Danelaw, as belonging to its own distinct ethnic group, I think it's fair game. So after all this, let's regroup, because this is a lot. Biblically speaking, William was conducting a just war, backed by God as nothing more than an established manifestation of God's divine love for the Northumbrians. Politically speaking, William had the backing of Pope Alexander II, the closest living human to God. Personally, however, William saw the situation through the lens of exasperation toward his rebellious, ungrateful new subjects, not to mention that his pressures in England were only one side of his battles for legitimacy, as the county of Maine to the south of Normandy was also rising in revolt of his ducal rule there. Furthermore, we've established Northumbria as, arguably, its own ethnic group, a thousand years ago, which leads into our overall question about whether William, again, was guilty of genocide or not. I think the general consensus is this. The vast majority of people admit William was guilty of genocide against Northumbria. Again, it was premeditated, it was systematic, and it targeted a specific ethnic group within a larger polity. However, there are still folks who argue against it being genocide. Now, if you can believe this, separate from whether it was genocide or not, Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, mentions recent assessments by historians to make this whole 
Harrying of the North episode as uh, out as not as bad as Centuries of Chroniclers have made it out to be. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's my reaction. Like, really? Sorry, but this is just a little side note, but it bothers me. First, 66% of all manors and villages in Yorkshire alone were listed as Vasta, or Wasted, in the Doomsday Book. Again, after 15 years. Next point, under King Edward II in January 1066, according to the same Doomsday Book, Northumbria was more than 60% wealthier than it was in 1086. I repeat, from earlier, 150,000 Northumbrians were dead within a year, equating to just a quarter of its 1066 population, left alive by the end of 1070. And according to research by the likes of Richard Muir, this loss of life equated to between 4.5 and 5.5% of the entire population of England at the time. Now, some people claim that William's forces by late 1069, well, they were so small that it couldn't possibly have created such a black hole of misery in the north, coupled with records that the winter of 1069 to 1070 was also pretty darn bleak one, one either way. But I'd like to ask a couple uh, hard questions in rebuttal. Number one, if William's forces were so small and weak by that time, how was William able to traipse his way across England and still manage to quell uprisings in nearly every corner but Sussex so quickly and effectively in that time period? While doing that, how was he able to present such a show of force to the Danes that they whimpered away into a deal amounting to nothing short of Danegeld payments? And if William's army was so small and weak, then how did the destruction actually happen? My second set of questions... Was the winter a bad one because the earth was planning a bad winter regardless of the goings-on of these pesky humans? Or was it a bad winter precisely because of the devastation William laid upon the region? That is, did William compound an already tough winter by stripping its people of any chance to survive it? So we're still left with, <laughs> if you can believe it after all this, did William commit the crime of genocide? I know, I know. Would this guy just get to the point already? I get it. All right, so here goes. I'd say that if this were to occur today without question, William would be convicted of genocide against the Northumbrians, hands down. In my opinion, that's a layup, folks. But there's a catch, and there's always a catch. And catches always start with a however. So here goes. However, I've tried to maintain one main hurdle to jump through throughout this whole podcast. Is it right to judge the actions of our ancestors by the values and laws of today? And this may rankle some. It kind of rankles me to some degree. But I personally think there is a time and place for each of those discussions. In our hearts, can we condemn William for his actions in the North? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the word genocide wasn't even coined until some Polish guy in the 40s put the Latin root for origins and the Greek root for to kill together. But that doesn't mean we can't analyze our past through our own lenses either. And before anyone accuses me of saying that the Nazis should be let off the hook, save it. Because we've already heard that the very definitions of violence, the accepted rules of engagement, 
in and out of warfare and the sheer amount of history behind the preceding thousand years between World War II and the Norman conquest of England sheds light on the very obvious ideas and perceptions of things like genocide have evolved considerably, and they continue to evolve beyond us as well. The United Nations may have defined it, but they never could have done that had we not evolved in our thinking to the point to recognize how horrifically wrong the Nazis were in the first place. And therein lies the thousand-year difference between the Holocaust and the Herring of the North. Those on the outside of those atrocities evolved to the point to not only recognize such atrocities, but to also feel morally obligated to stamp it out when we recognize it, punish those who are guilty of it, and even to prevent it from happening in the future to the best of our abilities. So again, the question remains, can we hold him to a standard that simply didn't exist in his day? And I don't know if we can or not. If the standard didn't exist, then how can we assume that he wouldn't have risen to that standard had he been accustomed to it? Conversely, I tried to explain Nazi Germany was well aware of crimes against humanity it was committing due to cultural, religious, and philosophical evolution. So I don't let the Nazis off the hook. Again, the thoughts had evolved to understand what was happening by that time. Horrible wars had had taken place from the Napoleonic to the American Civil War to World War I. Uh, There were so many around the world, too many to list here, and they all came to the conclusion about violence. So there was an evolution in thinking about violence by the time uh, Adolf Hitler rose to power. He knew what he was doing would not be acceptable. But did William? We can assume all we want, but it doesn't make it fair. We don't do this to our children, do we? If a child has not yet been educated on a particular set of values, then how can we hold them to that standard on the first violation of them? And here's the thing. Mark Morris, in his article posted on the History Extra website, mentions a text that did fuel medieval warfare strategy, lending credence to the lack of evolutionary thought in the realm of genocide and the like. And this text removes the Christian philosophy from the equation altogether, separating it from St. Augustine's arguments we heard er earlier. Though interestingly, these two authors were close enough to be contemporaries of one another. He tells us of a Roman writer named Vigitius, who wrote a manual entitled On Military Matters. Morris tells us that this book was widely read and studied throughout the Middle Ages, which is a little surprising considering Vigitius wrote it in the three or four hundred CE, during the twilight of the Western Roman Empire. Tactics like the harrying were well known then and widely used throughout the Middle Ages. It wasn't just William in the 11th century. However, what sets William's actions in the North apart from, say, the likes of Hearthknute and his own harrying of Worcestershire a couple decades earlier? is the widespread inclusion of non-combatants into the strategy, as well as one of those, uh, as one of the rules of engagements called proportionality, which states that combatants must allow injury to persons and properties, both military and civilian, that it's in proportion to what will cease the opponent's war efforts. William destroyed not just enemy soldiers and their families, but the wickedness of his actions extended 
to the destruction of the very livelihood of the region's people. He destroyed their means of production as well as their means of sustenance. He gave them no choice but to die. According to Morris, William was just following customs of the day. But we can't assume that gets him off the hook entirely, though. And this is why it's so complicated. I don't even know if I'm coming up with an actual answer here on this episode. Morris also tells us that even folks fighting for William were disgusted by what they saw there in Northumbria. Yeah, the article itself states the following, quote, In modern times, we would have no hesitation in branding such an act as genocide, a term coined in 1944. Contemporaries did not do so, but they were clearly shocked by the amount of death William had caused. According to Orderic Vitalis, one soldier in the king's army, Gilbert de Dauphay, returned to Normandy at this point, declining the offer of estates in England. Another, named Renfrid, moved to sorrow by the effects of the harrying, became a monk at Evesham Abbey, and later returned to Yorkshire to refound the derelict Abbey of Whitby. End quote. The article goes on to say this quote, William had broken no human law and would not be condemned by any earthly court. But Orderic declared that the king's quote, unquote, brutal slaughter would surely be punished. Quote, For the Almighty Judge watches over high and low alike, he will weigh the deeds of all in in an even balance and, as a just avenger, will punish wrongdoing as the eternal law makes clear to men. End quote. William the Conqueror is a lot of things. Impressive, imposing, strong-willed, a textbook bully, a tyrant, a man fueled by violence and the need to show himself worthy at all costs. And according to Orderic Vitalis, he's doomed to be judged by God as guilty of divine crimes. But, down here in the secular world, is he truly genocidal? I've kind of given my current opinions. My claim is yes, I've given my opinion already, but I'd really be curious to hear your opinions too. Well, as I said at the top of the show, this episode might get a little messy. And I'll be honest, as I was then, in saying that I don't even pretend to have the exact right answer. I did my level best to say what I meant, but I wouldn't put it past me to have misspoken or failed to properly make my point. That's the curse of doing something like this for fun and not as a job, though doing this full-time is more and more becoming a little dream of mine. This is as much as a much, much larger topic to cover. That's for, that's for darn sure. This is such a multifaceted, complicated, and emotionally delicate line of thinking. And I feel like I've already belabored the point for our purposes here, but this is what history is about. Studying, analyzing, interpreting, comparing, and contrasting. But in my opinion, most importantly, reflecting. I suppose it's time to move on and sum it up with this. William, at the very least, did the Northumbrians dirty. And man, do I feel terrible for them, just as I feel sick about all such atrocities before then and since. Unfortunately, and this is just, just sucks to say, William was not finished with them. With all of England, actually, but he had overcome a gigantic hurdle, whether he realized it at the time or not. But first, or Derek Vitalis, again, our Anglo-Norman monk, 
born just five years after the harrying of the North and writing just a generation later, had some serious words to close this chapter of the conquest up. And it is scathing, to say the very least. He writes the following, almost spitting each word. Keep in mind that Orderic Vitalis was writing from a monastery within Normandy itself in the early 1100s, a place still ruled at the time by William's sons, so the guts of this chronicler were something quite special. Orderic writes the following, quote, My narrative has frequently had occasion to praise William, but for this act which condemned the innocent and guilty alike to die by slow starvation, I cannot commend him. For when I think of helpless children, young men in their prime of life, and oary gray beards perishing alike of hunger, I am so moved to pity that I would rather lament the grief and sufferings of the wretched people than make a vain attempt to flatter the perpetrator of such infamy. End quote. Whew. Or Derek, a monk. I wonder to what extent he believed in divine retribution. My guess? To a high degree. More importantly, I wonder to what extent William believed in divine retribution. Yeah, well, even if it wasn't really his thing, he's about to experience it. And I can't wait to tell you about it.